Welcome to Chats with Susan Burrell. And that's me. I help strong, capable women who have pockets of self-doubt access their inner wisdom and clarify their own truth. Chats with Susan Burrell is where we have rich conversations about empowerment, radiating your brilliance out into the world, and loving yourself more than you ever have before. And who doesn't want that? So let's get started. So today I am oh so happy to have Dr. Joe Dispenza joining me today. Joe, thank you so much for calling in and being here. Thank you, Susan. I'm happy to be with you. Now, the reason why you're here with us today is because in January, you're going to be doing a workshop out in Westlake Village from January 8th to the 10th at the Westlake Center for Spiritual Living. So we're going to be talking a bit about your workshop. But first, I want to let everybody know that um, you were in the movie 10 years ago, What the Bleep Do We Know? And one, and your segment, I think, was very powerful because, and this is the work you've continued to do over the last 10 years of exploring the, the idea of neuroscience and how we can use that to change our, our life. Yeah? Absolutely. So let's talk a bit about a couple of uh, ideas around that because I, I want our listeners, who, if they haven't seen What the Bleep Do We Know?, to kind of understand what the neuroscience piece of it is and then move into what it is you'll be doing at your workshop. Well, I think one of the biggest things, Susan, we heard uh, uh, at the Bleep conferences and several of the workshops we did around the world after the movie was that people said, you know, really great information, really good content, but how do you do it? You know, how do you create the life that you want? And, and you know, I think that science is the contemporary language of mysticism. I think science is a great way to demystify the mystical. And so, uh, 10 years ago, people were interested in the philosophical, scientific understanding of how subjective mind, our mind produced an effect on the objective world, on, on reality. But if you start to think about how mind affects matter, then you've got to start examining what is mind and how the brain and the mind work. And so. We started teaching workshops around the world and, and with the intention of showing people how to do it. I mean, the two, the two questions that kept coming up over and over again were, was how do you do it and if your personality creates your personal reality and your personality is made up of how you think, how you act, and how you feel. And if I'm going to create a new personal reality, I have to change my personality. Why is it so hard to change? So we created a biological model. Uh, based in the latest science of neuroplasticity and epigenetics and psychoneuroimmunology and quantum physics, which, by the way, all of those specific fields point the finger at possibility. They empower the individual to have some control over their destiny. So we began on the journey, and um, I'm happy to say 10 years later, we're seeing some pretty remarkable things. For some of the people out there that may not understand the quantum physics field of possibility, can you describe that a little bit more? Sure. You know, um, when Newton and Descartes were uh, studying the nature of reality, they basically said mind and matter were separate entities. There was, you know, the nature of reality, the external objective world, that world was a sphere of science, and that was predictable. And you can, you can project where the planets are going to be, and when an apple falls from a tree, you can predict when it's going to land and how fast it's moving. Uh, but when 
you start studying mind, mind was way too convoluted, and so they left that up to the sphere of religion. But after Einstein came along and started producing some of his equations, they started studying the subatomic world, and when they started studying subatomic particles, somehow everywhere they looked for an electron, it appeared. So now, subjective mind is having an effect on the objective world, and, and so people will say, you know, that really works for the very tiny, you know, uh, you know the electron appears from an infinite field of possibilities collapsing into a particle, but it doesn't work for the very large. But maybe we're just poor observers. Maybe we can sharpen our skill of observation, and maybe we can understand what it takes to exert greater effects on our life. And so if you're viewing your life from the same level of mind every single day, then everything pretty much stays the same. Have a quantum shift in your understanding about the nature of reality. Use the knowledge that you're learning to begin to perceive reality a little bit differently and begin to experiment with your own life as a scientist to see if you're, you can produce some effects in your life by you being at cause. So what I'm hearing you describe, Joe, is that we participate in the world of matter. It does, things just don't happen to us. We are participatory beings. Well, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon because then it, it, it begs the question, uh, does your personality create your personal reality or does your personal reality create your personality? In other words, does your external environment control how you think and feel or does how you think and feel control your external environment? So if you're not in the process of being defined by a vision of the future every single day, in the creative process, of putting your attention, and where you place your attention is where you place your energy, putting your attention on some future experience that you want to embrace, and you're passionate about it, that future, then for the most part, if you're not in the creative process, then when you wake up every single day and you do the same routine that you've done for the last 10 years, you go to the same place, you see the same people, you do the exact same thing at the exact same time, that predictable Newtonian reality is causing your external environment to impress how you're thinking and feeling. So as long as you're reacting to the same conditions in your life, you keep reaffirming the same reality in your life. And so people begin to understand how that works, then they understand and they have to eliminate themselves for a period of time from their external environment and begin to create independent of their environment. And that participation starts to give people their own sense of empowerment because that's when unique and wonderful experiences begin to show up in our, in our lives in a way that we would never anticipate or predict. That's the quantum reality where it shows up and surprises us and leaves no doubt that what we were doing inside of us produced some effect outside of us. And that's when we begin to correlate what we're doing inside of us with the effects that we created outside of us, and we do it again, and that's called uh, empowerment. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Joe. And one of the things you just said, though, is in order to change or in order to shift your experience, you have to take yourself out of the experience. So how do you how do you do that? I mean, if I'm showing up at a job every day and it's the same old thing, do I have to leave my job? No, that's actually, it's not necessary unless your job doesn't bring you joy any longer. <laughs> but <laughs> Which happens to a lot of people, yeah. And then it's time to make another choice. Look, and my theory is if you can predict something in your life and you can predict it so well, I don't care if it's a relationship, a job, 
uh, I don't care, whatever it is, when it gets so predictable that it's boring, it's time to make a different choice. And there's an infinite uh, uh, um, expanse of opportunity that exists in that unknown. But we use the model of meditation as a great way for people to eliminate themselves from their external environment. Most people define themselves in their lives through their senses. If you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it, you can't feel it, uh, it's not real. But when you're in the meditative process, what you're saying is, I'm eliminating my interaction with my environment by disconnecting from things that I see and hear and smell. I'm putting my body away. I'm sitting it down, and I'm not letting it do anything to reaffirm the same identity. And I'm transcending time. And retreating from your life every single day, and instead of being defined by a memory of the past, but being defined by a vision of the future begins to produce biological changes in the brain and body to look like the event has already happened. So can we believe in a future that we can't see or experience with our senses yet, but we've thought about enough times in our mind that our brain is literally changed to look like the event has already occurred? Quantum model of neuroplasticity and, and says that we can change our brain just by thinking differently. And can we emotionally embrace some future reality that already exists in the quantum field and emotionally embrace that future to such a degree that the body is the unconscious mind begins to believe that future reality is happening in the present moment and we're signaling new genes in new ways so that the body begins to change to look like the experience has already happened. Epigenetics says it's absolutely possible. So if your brain and body have physical evidence that the experience has already occurred, then it's time to relax and surrender because that's when the experience finds us and it will come in a way that we least expect. It has to come in an unpredictable way because if we can predict it, it's nothing new. It has to catch us off guard. It has to surprise us and rock our world and leave no doubt that what we did inside of us produced some effect outside of us. And and, uh, and people be around the world are beginning to wake up to this, and they're becoming creators of, of their own lives. I love your description of how that process works, because I personally have experienced that in my, in my life, where something shifts dramatically, and, and it's happened to me in a matter of a moment, too, where I, I am astounded going, okay, really? All right, then. I'm going to say yes to this part. It's very interesting, because I believe in having the opportunity to contribute to people's lives in the last 10 years. I think the hardest part of all of this, Susan, is making the time to do it. I think that's it. Yeah. I think taking time for our precious selves to really become a work in progress. And the old model of reality is to wait for crisis or trauma or disease or diagnosis or loss. You know, that's when people finally <laughs> make up their mind to change. We have to be brought to this lowest denominator. And when we no longer feel like ourselves, we can see who we've been. We can begin to think about what we've been thinking about, notice how we've been acting, and pay attention to how we've been feeling. And that concept in neuroscience is called metacognition. We're looking at the old self. And when we're looking at the old self, for the first time, we're not the old self. And that means we're beginning to objectify our subjective selves. But my message is why wait? I mean, you can learn and change in a state of pain and suffering. Or you can learn and change in a state of joy and inspiration. And, and I prefer the latter. And I think people are beginning to understand that, that that's, that's a more profound way to begin to interact with life. And the brain learns by 
mistakes, and the brain learns by surprises. So it's, I think it's about time we start having a little bit more surprise in our life. Well, I agree with you, Joe, and it's a hell of a lot more fun to do it from a higher uh, observation point, if you will, than to be dragged through the muck, kicking and screaming, you know, and and that happens to so many people. I'd like your idea of if you're in a state of boredom or unhappiness, it really is the indicator that it's time to shift your perception and make a change. Hmm. And I think the hardest part about change, really, Susan, is not making the same choice as we did the day before. And the moment we're no longer going to think the same way, or the moment longer we're not going to execute the same behaviors or, or live in the same emotional state, the moment we do that, we don't feel like ourselves any longer. And that's when we step into that river of change. And because that river of change uh, feels so unfamiliar, it feels so uncomfortable, it feels like an unknown, it feels unpredictable. Most people rush back to the same uh, boring or unhappy life so that at least they can predict their own guilt or their own judgment or their own unworthiness because that's more familiar to them. And so waltzing from the old self to the new self and crossing that void is the biological, the neurological the chemical, and even the genetic death of the old self. And people will say, well, I can't predict my future. Well, the best way to predict your future is to create it right in that unknown. That is the perfect place. And so when we show people that, according to the quantum model, that, that unknown, that uncertainty, that place is where all possibilities exist, then they can begin to decide what thoughts they do want to fire and wire in their brain. They can begin to mentally rehearse what behaviors they're going to demonstrate in their life and install the circuits in their brain to look like the experiences occurred. And if they can teach their body emotionally what joy feels like or freedom feels like or, or abundance feels like, and they understand the, well, how to do that, they're beginning to create a new biological self. And, and um, it's not a process of white-knuckling it. It's a process of uh, uh, creation. And so uh, when we get to the point where we're bored and it's becoming so predictable and we just surrender to a life that's the same because we don't think we have any, any choice in the matter, that's, I think that's when the soul starts to get really antsy. And I think it starts to nudge us and say, come on, it's time to wake up. There's so much to experience in the unknown and you're still holding on to these, you know, these same states of being. Joe, as you were just saying that, part of um, one of the conversations we've had on Living Your Inspired Life is about self-value, self-worth, and how many of us have been, our culture, if you will, affirms that we're not valuable, which is why you got to go buy the next best thing or look like the supermodel or whatever it is. So resetting or, or rewiring the brain to see yourself differently, it, in my experience, sometimes it felt like it was taking way too long. <laughs> well, actually, no. I mean, I believe that we already know how to do this. I think everybody at some point in their life has done something great. And when they did something great, they didn't do exactly what they did the day before. They sat down and they thought for a few moments of what they wanted to experience, whether it was a goal or a vision or a dream or whatever. And they started to create an image in their mind that represented a new future. That's called an intention. And then they got inspired by it. They started getting uh, excited and, and enthusiastic. And their body was getting a sampling emotionally of the future. And if how you think and how you feel creates a state of being, for that moment, they're living in that future reality. 
and they started to think about the choices they were going to make and the choices they weren't going to make. And they started to review the behaviors they were not going to demonstrate and the habits they were not going to fall back into, and they started to review the, the behaviors they were going to demonstrate. And they kept their energy and emotions up, and they didn't want to fall to those lower-level emotions. And they did it every day. Every day they made it a priority until they reached a point where they knew it was going to happen. And when you reach that point, it's no longer about the experience. It's about the fact that you created the experience. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's like cooking a great meal and then finally sitting down and knowing it's going to be awesome. We've all done that. But if we think about a time in our life when we didn't do it, we had a vision and then we got busy and then we got emotional and we reacted to people and there was never enough time and, and then you got uh, social engagements and obligations and uh, you know, everything got in the way. You got, didn't feel like it and, and we shrunk back into mediocrity. So I think we already know how to do this and I think there's just some ingredients that allow it, allow it to be uh, quickened if you will, when you understand what you're doing and why. So what I'm hearing you say through all of this is that we're already wired for achieving our dreams and our, uh, our highest good, if you will. Oh, there's no doubt about it that we come preloaded with all the biological and neurological machinery to do this. There's no doubt that I have seen in the last 10 years common people like you and I doing the uncommon, healing themselves from all kinds of diseases, creating the lives they wanted, letting go of old emotional scars, um, experience mystical and, and uh, profound interdimensional experiences uh, that change them forever. And so I think we're innately already uh, uh, divine creators, and I think the biggest limitation that we have as human beings is living in that state of survival, and living in survival is living in stress, and stress is when our bodies are knocked out of homeostasis and balance, and when we live in those states of emergency or, or altered to such a degree that we experience aggression and anger and hatred and frustration and judgment and fear and anxiety and insecurity, unworthiness, guilt, shame, depression, those are all created from the hormones of stress. And it's a scientific fact that more than 70% of the time people live in those states. So when you're living in survival and there's threats out in your external environment, and that jungle is dangerous. It's not a time to create. <laughs> it's not a time to trust. It's not a time to open your heart. It's a time to survive. And so if we're spending the majority of our time living in that state, then we're always trying to force the outcome. We're always trying to control the outcome. We're always trying to change something in our life by matter trying to change matter. And that's when we get in trouble because we get in our own way. And so we have to lay down the very thing we used our whole life to get what we want for something greater to occur. And that's what people are waking up to now. Joe, I have a little antidote about this matter trying to change matter thing. I drink coconut milk in my coffee, and the local stores in town didn't have it. I kept going to one or the other and one or the other. And finally, one day I was working on a different circumstance in my life that I had to just keep surrendering, all right? Just let it go. I'm not going to focus on that happening. I'm just going to let it happen as it will. While I was standing at the grocery store looking for my coconut creamer, which was not on the shelf. And I found myself going, really, Susan, you're gonna, I, you stood here for 10 minutes 
it's not there. You've looked in every nook and cranny. I, I just stood there looking for the coconut milk. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to stand here looking for this coconut milk. And meanwhile, I was also telling myself, and I'm going to let go of this current circumstance. Whatever it is, I'm just dropping it. And as soon as I really felt that surrender from my body and my mind and my heart, I swear there was one container of coconut milk and it showed up on that shelf. And there was nobody restocking the shelves. I got to tell you, it just showed up. And it, and that speaks to the place where when we can as individuals really let go of the thing we think we're supposed to have or the way we want it or the control factor, good yes, shows and, up. And, yeah. And uh, I always say there's such a delicate balance between intention and surrender. Intention is getting clear on what we want and surrender is trusting in the outcome. So, but if we overintend, we start to try and we start to force and we get in our own way. When we over-surrender, we, dis- we disbelieve, we're apathetic, we're lethargic, and we don't, we don't need, we're not making an effort. But that razor's edge of being mm-hmm. able to get clear and then trusting in the outcome is, is, a, is an art, and it's a, it's a fine line. But we've all experienced it at times in our lives where we're, we're, we're doing it, we're doing it, doing it, and finally we just let go, and all of a sudden it appears out of nowhere. Now, the point is, if it happened with coconut milk, it could happen with any other thing in your life if you have that kind of intensity for bigger things. And so if it happens with coconut milk, the next question we should ask ourselves is, what other areas of my life would I like to see a shift in? I'm going to use the same principles to produce a greater result with the same enthusiasm, with the same passion, with the same will, with the same intention. That's where people are starting to step into the unknown. And you're seeing that in the workshops that you do, that people are really taking that step into uh, the, the co-creative process. Well, the workshops, without a doubt, is where the miraculous happens. It's where the unconventional occurs. We, I've seen it over and over again. And the whole reason our workshops have become so popular is because we do things. We don't sit around and talk philosophical concepts. I mean, in the workshop in... in uh, in Westlake Village, people are going to understand what the present moment is. You're going to understand when you're there and when you're not. You're going to understand um, what it is to change a belief and a perception and how to change a belief and perception, how to tune into potentials that already exist in the quantum field, to pull the mind out of the body and then recondition the body emotionally to a new mind. And to, I mean, there's so many meditations we do in one weekend that people are given a lot of tools uh, to begin to, uh, to to execute greater changes for themselves and their lives. So it's a doing it's a doing workshop, and uh, we demystify quite a bit. So there's knowledge that's given, and then people are pushed right into the experience so they can experience the truth of everything that we're talking about. I can feel that as you're saying it. I, I think that's awesome. I think the, the doing part is, is important. I'm talking to Joe Dispenza. He's going to be in, at Westlake Center for Spiritual Living, January 8th through the 10th. And you can go to cslwestlake.org to find out more about the workshop. It's called Ascending Your Energy, Tune Into Your New Destiny. So, Dr. Joe, you have written several books. Let's talk about those. Okay. <laughs> uh, what would you like to talk about, Susan? Well, your latest book is called You Are the Placebo, Making Your Mind Matter. I saw on your website there was a conversation about placebo and nocebo, and I'd never heard the word nocebo. So uh, let's talk about all that. Okay, well, I wrote You Are the Placebo because we started seeing people right in our workshops, right during a weekend, heal themselves of very, very significant genetic conditions, whether it was lupus or MS or 
uh, chronic pain or, uh, wow, we saw Hashimoto syndrome, all kinds of, really? you know, different conditions. And it was, it was started to catch my eye because it was happening in real time. In other words, they just didn't feel better. They were better. We, we took the measurements in their blood tests and in their scans and uh, all the markers returned back to normal. So I started thinking about how can you give someone a sugar pill a saline injection or perform some false surgery or procedure and a certain percentage of those people will accept believe and surrender to the thought or the idea without any analysis that they're getting the real substance or treatment and they begin to program their autonomic nervous system to make their own pharmacy of chemicals hmm. that matches the exact chemical they think they're taking they make their own antidepressants, their own antihistamines, their own, own analgesics or anti-pain medications or chemicals by thought alone. So then I started thinking, well, if I begin to understand the science behind how the placebo works and really look at um, what science has to say about it, could you teach it and could you teach it better? And instead of people putting some faith or belief in something outside of them, like... Yeah the pill representing a symbol of health, could they put their faith and belief in a potential that exists in the quantum field, an unknown, and keep revisiting that unknown until they make it known and produce the same biological changes by thought alone? And I'm happy to say that in the book, uh, I've gone the great measures to not only demystify it, but then we've done over a 1,000 brain scans of our students in our advanced workshops before before a workshop, and they went through four or five days of training, and then we measured their brain after. We've measured epigenetic changes in their urine. We've measured heart coherence. We measured the energy in the room, the energy around the body. And without a doubt, uh, when people understand what they're doing and why they're doing it, the how becomes easier. And so my interest was, and still is, to close the gap between knowledge and experience. And the workshops we teach, our advanced workshops, are called Information to Transformation. And, and um, we've done t a ton of measurements to really show that it's not just in people's minds, it's in their brains. Wow, I think that's so impressive. And, uh, and the fact that it is qualifiable, that you're able to test and then see. Now, are these, are these um, transformations or healings, if you will, are they sustainable? I mean, like when they leave the workshop, do they still not have whatever they came in with? Yeah, yeah, 95% of them are sustained. Yeah, we've, we've had people with Parkinson's disease and traumatic brain injuries, uterine fibroids, uh, severe anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, they're, they're functioning in a, in a very different personality. They're functioning in a very different state of being. And so, um, yeah, the answer to the question is absolutely yes. And, and, but by the same means, if you think about it, let's say you're in a, an antidepressant study and you're given a placebo, and you're taking that pill for six or eight weeks. That pill is a reminder. It oh. represents a future potential, right? So you yeah. have to take the pill every day to remind you that you're getting better. Well, just like taking that pill, that when you take that pill, that's the placebo, it represents a future possibility. And when you get enthusiastic or excited or emotionally uh, lifted, the combination of the clear intention and the elevated emotion begins to change your biology. So just like someone taking the placebo every day, some of these people uh, who heal themselves of rare genetic disorders like 
uh, polycystic fibrodysplasia, which n- never heals in uh, most, uh, and it never heals ever. A person's walking around with all their markers normal and no signs of fractures in any of her bones. That person had to cross the river of change, and she had to move into a new state of being for years until finally she kept signaling that gene over and over again. Finally, she programmed the gene to make a different protein. So it doesn't always happen in one weekend, but there are people who are very committed to this work that have crossed that river of change. It's taken them years to get there, but once they program the gene and it's turned on, they're living a very different life than they were uh, uh, years before. I love that because I believe in the power of of that ability to change. I I think it's absolutely possible. So one of the things that I'm hearing you say also is in the first half and, and then just now is changing the gene, the gene that is reflective of our DNA, yeah? Mm-hmm. can't even tell you how many people when they start talking to me about, oh, I got this stuff going on with my family or, you know, my father has cancer and I, I'm, I'm going to have cancer because it's in my genes. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. How do you know that? But there's a huge medical belief system out there that your genes program your DNA or your DNA programs your genes and therefore whatever somebody else had in your family, you're going to get. Mm. Well, that's not true. I can tell you that from Thank studying God. the studies. Um, a gene has to be instructed. It has to be signaled. Now, just a little overview about genes. Um, your body is a protein-producing machine. Muscle cells make muscle proteins. They're called actin and myosin. Stomach cells make stomach proteins. They're called enzymes. Skin cells make skin proteins called collagen and elastin. Um, immune cells make uh, immune proteins called antibodies. So your body is a protein-producing machine. Now, proteins are responsible for both the structure and the function of your body. So in order for a gene, in order for your body to make a protein, a gene has to be expressed. So now, if you understand then that the environment signals the gene, now this is science, and less than 5% of the people are born on the planet with genetic conditions like Tay-Sachs disease or sickle cell anemia or type 1 diabetes, and the other 95% develop conditions based on lifestyle and behaviors and choices, then if you keep emotionally reacting to the same conditions in your life every single day and doing the same things and thinking the same thoughts, There's no new information coming from your environment, and if you keep signaling that same gene in the same way over and over again, the same instruction begins to wear the gene out, and the gene begins to what's called downregulate or dysregulate and make cheaper proteins. And so the body ages because it starts making weaker proteins. So then is it possible then if a person was living in fear because their father was abusive as a child, and they, they, they memorize that emotional state, and they perceive their life through the lens of fear. And every single day, it's a scientific fact that the hormones of stress, primarily emotions like fear, dysregulate and downregulate genes to create disease. After 10 years of the exposure to that same environmental condition, she programmed the gene to make a different protein. Is it possible then to recondition the body and signal a new gene in a new way to make a different protein to change either the structure or function of the body? 
And it turns out in one gene, you can have 35,000 variations on that same gene. Now, genes are like Christmas tree lights. They turn on and they turn off. When they turn on, they upregulate. They make great proteins for health and for long-term building projects and growth and repair. When they downregulate, they're in stress or they're in emergency, and they're turning off and they're making weaker proteins. So your Christmas tree lights are turning on and off all the time. But if you're thinking the same thoughts that produce the same chemicals to make you feel the same way, and those feelings drive your same thoughts, how you think and how you feel creates a state of being. And those familiar feelings that are based on past experiences begin to regulate the same chemicals. You keep the same lights on and the same lights off, and now you're headed for a genetic destiny. So now this just isn't dinner conversation because... I've had enough dinner conversations with quantum physicists and neuroscientists and geneticists to the point where I'm more interested in the application of it than anything else. And when, when people begin to realize, when they know the truth, as an example, a group of stressed out executives that have really you know, high demands on themselves, if they spend 15 to 20 minutes a day finding the present moment, learning how to relax, learning how to breathe, and they do that for six weeks, they will regulate 1,561 new genes, over 800 genes that upregulate for growth and, and health, and over 700 genes that downregulate for disease and inflammation, turning on new lights, turning off old lights. And if people happen to meditate in the past, the average is about 2,000 new genes are regulated just by doing something differently. So when people begin to understand that the central dogma, the dogma that genes create disease, isn't absolute, absolutely the truth, it's partially the truth because the gene has to be instructed. And it may take a little bit of an effort for people to really continuously signal the gene every single day and they understand what, they do, what they're doing and assigning more meaning to it then we should see some biological changes as a result of it. And that's where my interest is. I like the application part, Joe. And I'm curious because as the modern medical field, is this integrating into the, the AMA way of doing healthcare? Well, I think there's a strong intellectual division that's going on right now in our world, in Western culture. And actually, I'm going to say the world now, the global, the global consciousness. I think there are people that are clinging to the very old paradigms of, um, you know, genes create disease and you're a victim to your world and, you know, get used to it. And I think there's, a, there's an awakening going on where people are realize, realizing that optimists live longer than pessimists and that uh, people with a better attitude do better with uh, healing their condition and that when people take more responsibility for their treatments and they're more involved in it and they feel good about what they're doing, they get better. And you can't even deny the placebo any longer. I mean, if three out of four people who are in a double-blind placebo study for depression are given a placebo, three out of four of those people get well <laughs> by taking a, a starch pill. You cannot uh, eliminate the fact that thought is that powerful. So I love medicine. I think it has its place. I think it's really great for acute conditions. If you break your arm or you have appendicitis or you get in an accident, emergency cares, uh, medicine has an amazing effect on that. 
but we're talking about chronic conditions that require a lifestyle change. Uh, a new paradigm and a new model has to be uh, uh, enveloped, and so I think it requires both physical changes in the body, it requires chemical changes in the body, and it requires emotional changes in the body. If there's three types of stress, physical, chemical, and emotional, then there's three types of balance, physical, chemical, and emotional. And my experience in 30 years of just studying this is that if you get two out of those three in order, the third one always comes around. If a person is chemically out of balance and physically out of balance and you change that, they're more emotionally balanced. If they're, more, if they're emotionally imbalanced and they're chemically imbalanced, then if you can get them to change their emotional state and their chemical state, they're more physically balanced. So I think that people are beginning to want a new understanding, a new model that they can adhere to and, and, and be participants in it as well. If you would just speak a bit about why the emotional, emotions are so important, because it, it seems to me like if I got something going on health-wise, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want my doctor to help me with my chemical, you know, my chemistry and my physical stuff. But what's so important about the emotional stuff? Huh. Well, uh, so if you, if you study the emotions of stress or the chemicals of stress, um, the chemicals of stress are the chemicals that push the genetic buttons that create disease. When we live in chronic states of long-term stress, no organisms in nature can live in emergency mode for an extended period of time. It's just impossible because all the energy is being utilized for emergency in their external environment, and there's no energy in the internal environment for growth and repair. So when we react to things in our life, the end product of any experience is called a feeling or an emotion. Now, if 70% of the time most people are reacting to conditions in their life and they're experiencing bitterness or hatred or judgment, fear, it's those chemicals that are created from those hormones of stress that begin to downregulate genes to create disease. So when you react to something or someone in your life, there's a refractory period of chemicals that are created from your reaction. That's called an emotion. You're altered in some way. But if you don't know how to control your emotional reaction to whatever it is in your life, and you keep that refractory period going on for hours or days, that's called a mood. A mood is one long emotional reaction. So someone comes up to you and says to you, Susan, what's wrong with you? And you say, well, I'm in a mood. Why are you in a mood? Well, I had this thing happen to me five days ago. What mm -hmm. really means is that you're having one long emotional reaction. Now, if you keep that same refractory period going on for weeks or months, that's called the temperament. So you say, why is he so angry? I don't know. Let's ask him. Why are you so angry? Well, I had this thing happen to me nine months ago, which means I'm memorizing my emotional reaction. Now, if emotions are a record of the past and you're living by the same emotion every single day, it means you were still in your past. And if you keep that emotional reaction going on for years on end, that's called a personality trait. So people start to wear their emotions layer by layer, and that's who they believe they are. But if you understand that the soul's real passion is to experience unknown and new events in our lives, and you're stuck in some emotion, your body as the unconscious mind does not know the difference between an actual experience in your life that creates an emotion and an emotion that you're fabricating by thought alone. And so if those emotions drive certain thoughts and those thoughts reaffirm certain emotions, that cycle of thinking and feeling then conditions your body 
to literally be in the past. And we can never create a new future holding on to the emotions of the past. So a person will say, well, I had this event that happened to me you know, 15 years ago with my ex-husband, and that's why I'm so angry. Well, great, but now that we know that you're angry because of some experience, what you're saying from a biological standpoint is you haven't changed in 15 years, and the fact that you're still angry means you're connected to that past experience. And when people begin to realize that the only person that they're hurting by living by that emotion is themselves. I don't care about the event. The event is meaningless. What is important is them overcoming that emotion because when they free their body from the chains of that emotional addiction, the side effect of that is true joy because the body is no longer anchored to the past. It's liberated. And there is a liberation of energy. We go from particle to wave, from matter to energy. And that liberation of energy causes the person to no longer view their life through the lens of the past. Now they can see possibilities they never saw before because a memory without the emotional charge is called wisdom, and that's the name of the game here. Is the inner wisdom. Exactly. So this, uh, on your website, you had a, I, I copied down a quote because it caught my attention where you said the quantum field responds to who we are being. So that's what you just were describing is that that, that infinite place of all possibility will react or align with us according to who we think we are. Sure. So, so a state of being, thoughts are the language of the brain and feelings are the language of the body. And how we think and how we feel creates a state of being. So just think about this. I mean, a person will say, well, I prayed all night long, and I had a very clear intention of what I wanted to happen. Well, it turns out they've done experiments to see if intention changes, any, as matter, changes matter in any way. They take a few vials of DNA, and they set them at a remote location away from expert prayers. And they say to these prayers, with all of your intention, we want you to see this DNA wind or unwind, wind or unwind, wind or unwind. Keep the image in your mind. Intention is a mindful, thoughtful process of the DNA unwinding. They do it over and over again. At the end of the experiment, they check the DNA, and nothing happens at all. Intention did nothing to change the DNA. So they take another group of expert prayers, and they say, we want you to move into an elevated emotion. We want you to feel joy, goodwill. We want you to feel gratitude and radiate this emotion out into the quantum field and just do it over and over again. And so they move into these elevated states and they keep you know, radiating this emotion into the field. They check the DNA at the end of the experiment and an elevated emotion did nothing to change the DNA. But when they said to those people, we want you to see the DNA unwind in your mind and we want you to get in touch with the emotion of how it would feel if the DNA actually unwound 25% of the DNA unwound before the actual experience occurred. In other words, the DNA changed by thought alone. So if how we think and how we feel creates a state of being, a clear intention combined with an elevated emotion causes us to be more energy and less matter. And energy is the epiphenomenon of matter. So people will say to you, well, when my healing finally shows up, then I'll feel whole. Huh. Or when my success finally comes, I'll feel empowerment. And when, I'm, you know, when, when my wealth comes, I'll feel abundant and free. Or when my new lover shows up, then I'll feel love and gratitude. Well, that's the old model of reality. We have to teach our body emotionally what that future is going to be like. In other words, 
it is the wholeness that you feel that creates the healing. It's the empowerment that creates the success. It's the uh, freedom and abundance that creates your wealth, and it's the love that you feel that creates the love in your life. And so making that turn for people uh, has them get beyond the idea of defining reality with their senses. And that's the state of being. So it sounds like you kind of have to have it before you can experience it. Well, uh, let's say it this way. You have to change your brain and body biologically to the point where you've conditioned your brain and body to already know what it's going to be like. And when you know that you know, then all of a sudden you're no longer trying to control the outcome. You trust in the outcome. Mm -hmm. You don't know when it's going to happen or where it's going to happen, but you know it's going to happen. And it's exactly how, how we are when we get tickled. You can't, the physiology of tickling, you could never be tickled if you know where you're going to be tickled or when. Well, the quantum field is the same way. It wants to surprise us. So when we start surrendering and trusting into the unknown, and uh, we get out of the way, that's when we're surprised and tickled by the universe. So, Joe, what would you say, because the T word, trust, is big, uh, a big button for people, you know. So what would you suggest people do in order, besides what you've already shared and, and through meditation, is there anything else about dropping into trust, especially when you're in those uh, stress places? No, trust doesn't work when you're in a stress place. When you're in a stress place, why would you trust? Exactly. <laughs> From a primitive standpoint, you're going to put your sword down and trust, the, trust the, uh, the, the, the warring tribe. You don't trust in survival. When you're in survival, the problem is when you're in survival, it's not a time to trust. It's a time to take care of yourself. And so <clears throat> this is a very interesting thing because we've studied so many biological effects in the last two years of people in meditation. We've looked at hundreds, of, we've looked at over a thousand brain scans. And I can tell you without a doubt, without a doubt, one doubt in my mind that you and I are at our best when we get beyond ourselves, yeah. that when you're living in survival, your attention is on your body. When you're living in survival, your attention is on your external environment. And when you're living in survival, you're obsessed about time. And we use our senses to define reality because we become materialists, because when you're in survival, your senses are heightened. So most people then are defining reality by their senses. So the antithesis of that is when you sit down and you put your body away, you become nobody. You become no one. You disconnect from your external environment. You become no thing. Mm -hmm. You become nowhere. And you become no time. And when you get to that point when you're nobody, no one, no thing, nowhere, in no time, and I've measured this enough times to tell you that you and I can do this pretty naturally. That's the moment you are pure consciousness. That's the moment you are no longer your same personality self. You are literally thought alone. And if you are going to heal your body by thought alone or change something in your external environment by thought alone or create some new future time experience by thought alone, then you have to become thought alone. And when we can unclutter and unfester ourselves from all of our associations that keep us connected to this reality, that's the moment we begin to open our hearts. That's the moment that the energy that's usually being uh, overutilized in those survival hormonal centers moves right into the heart. 
And that's the moment you start to feel connected to something greater. When you're living in stress, you feel separate from possibility. When your heart starts to open and you are in the process of creation, the energy around your body goes from about four inches wide to about nine meters wide. Your energy expands dramatically and you feel connected to something greater. That moment, that, that moment is trust. That's the moment where you are all of a sudden connected to something greater and you no longer try to force the outcome. You, your heart is open and you are already connected energetically to that experience. And on some level, this quality of intuition and knowing starts to take over and you would never try to force the outcome. You would never try to control the outcome because if you did, you'd go back to the old self. You just know that in some way and somehow it's going to happen because you've already experienced the emotion that's already connected to that event. And we've seen this over and over again. The heart goes into a high level of coherence and some of our students can sustain that kind of coherence for an hour at a time. It's a skill for them and they can create very significant coherent patterns in their brain, and they sustain that for an extended period of time. So a coherent brainwave signature combined with an elevated emotion that's creating a coherent heart rate signature creates a new energetic field, and uh, that's when we start to execute more effects on our, our environment. It sounds like what you've just described, Joe, is the way that you begin to touch into the unknown. Everything you've just described felt to me like that's just being in that unknown where there's that quantum field. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And so if you're living in survival, though, Susan, who wants to trust the unknown? When oh, you're in God. survival, you run from the unknown. It's not a time to trust in the unknown. The unknown represents predators and danger and, and uh an injury. Uh, and so uh, the more addicted we are to the hormones of stress and to those emotions, the more we don't, the more, w you know, we have, w we run from the unknown. Even if the, even if we have a bad relationship or a poor job or terrible circumstances in our life, we'd rather cling to the emotions that are, keep us connected to that than step into the unknown. When you teach people how to break free from those addictions emotionally, then the unknown becomes an adventure. Now they're, now they're not afraid of the unknown. They're craving the unknown because they know that they don't want what they've had all the way up until this point and that the eternity is a huge place and they want to step into it. I've shared this on Living Your Inspired Life often. Of the last couple of years in my personal life, I have had to really relinquish everything that I know in order to move forward in my life. And it, it was literally stepping into the unknown, which is not something I was comfortable in. And I got to affirm for everybody what you're saying, Joe, is that in that unknown place, it is a lot more fun. It's more exciting. It's more creative. It's more expansive than being in the the rut of whatever it is, you know, a terrible job, a terrible marriage, a health issue. Life is for having fun. Well, you know, I mean, it is, I mean, the polarity of life is that you're going to have fun and you're going to take some hard knocks. And there's nothing wrong with emotionally reacting to those things in your life. It's just how long you react. So I think when we are meeting the adversity in our life, the adversity in our life is to challenge our mind to a greater level of understanding. In other words, mm. what piece of philosophical, spiritual, uh, you know, theoretical information could I apply in this experience to produce, a different, to produce a different outcome? That's when it gets exciting. So the unknown then, for all of us, that's when we feel the most alive. 
That's when we feel we feel more aware because we can't cling to the familiar any longer if we're far far enough away from it. And that's when we start to rely on our greatest resources. And that's when we start to begin to take what is unknown in there and begin to become familiar with it and to make it known. And, and that's exactly what the word meditation means, to become familiar with. So the more we become familiar with our old self, and we don't let any thought, behavior, or emotion cause us to return back to the old self because we're so familiar with it, then we are separating ourselves from that old identity. And if we can think about and envision a new future and begin to rehearse the behaviors we're going to demonstrate and emotionally teach our body what it's going to be like, we're going to become familiar with a new state of being because nerve cells that fire together wire together. And if you keep bringing up the same emotion, you're beginning to condition your body into a future. And so I think once you begin to understand how it works uh, and you begin to demystify it to a greater degree, uh, then the unknown, all of a sudden, you say, okay, I'm out in the unknown now. At least I'm not in guilt or at least I'm not in shame or at least I'm not in unworthiness. God, I'm so glad I'm done with that. Now I have a whole new experience to create for myself, and there should be new emotions with that. And if there are infinite potentials in the quantum field, that means there are infinite experiences and infinite emotions. And it should be pretty exciting instead of living by some of the ones we've lived by for this up until this point. Dr. Joe Dispenza, thank you so much for joining us on Living Your Inspired Life today. I just want to remind everybody about your upcoming workshop again before we end. It's called Ascending Your Energy, Tune Into Your New Destiny. It's going to be January 8th through the 10th at Westlake Center for Spiritual Living, and you can find out more about it and sign up at cslwestlake.org. Dr. Joe, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation and the information and the thought-provoking stuff that you do. And so it is. Namaste. Well, that wraps up our chat for today. Thanks for joining me. And if you want to learn more, go to susanburrell.com. You can contact me through the website. There's blogs for you to read. There are videos to watch. And remember, I am an intuitive healer and spiritual guide at the crossroads of life. And I would be more than honored to help you on your journey to live an empowered life. And so it is. Namaste.